Well, typically I would pray first, but I'm going to introduce today's passage, and then we're going to pray because we will need it. Not that we don't normally need it, but we have before us today a very difficult passage, uh, one of the hardest, one of the most difficult passages in Scripture um, in Hebrews 6. The particular issue that comes up with this passage is eternal security, or whether you can turn to God and receive all of the benefits and the power of his salvation, and then turn away and lose it all, what is often called eternal security or, or some other names. And this topic is particularly difficult because on the one hand, it's a very serious issue. It's a very practical issue that really matters to our lives. Having assurance in our salvation is a very dear and precious thing. But on the other hand, it's not always as clear in Scripture as we would like it to be. There are certainly other hard-to-understand topics and issues in Scripture, but most of them um, have to do with things that don't make a lot of difference in our everyday lives. The most important things in Scripture are abundantly clear. But again, this is an issue that does make a lot of difference. It's very integral to the life of faith. It's one that we rightly, I would say, think about and consider and uh, often. Am I secure in my faith? And if I am, how can I know? How can I have that assurance? And as a pastor and as your pastors, this is a very serious and weighty issue. There are two related concerns that those tasked with shepherding a, a church, shepherding people, caring for people, have. On the one hand, we want you, we want those who truly belong to God to have assurance of that, to have increasing confidence and comfort of the hope that is yours in God. That is truly a very precious thing, and we think you can have that. On the other hand, false assurance is one of the most dangerous things, and we want to be very careful not to give that and careful to warn against it. Uh, you can think about it like this. Suppose that there was a, suppose you saw a tornado coming, a deadly tornado, and you just determined that this was your way to go. And so you resigned that this tornado was going to take you and this would be the end of you, and you've accepted that. You had no assurance of security, but you fully knew the danger you were in. But it is a very different thing if you see that tornado coming and think, well, I think I can stand my ground. I think I, think I can stand here and withstand this tornado. Maybe I can even use the gr great mighty power of my own breath to blow it around me. Well, the greatest danger you would face in that situation was not, would not be the tornado, but your assurance that the tornado was not much of any threat to you. Your false assurance that you would be safe. When we have this kind of false assurance, it is much more difficult for us to be convinced that we need to make any change, that there's any danger that we must act. So we desire assurance for you, and we believe you can have it, but we are on, on guard against false assurance. And false assurance is very rampant. Um, I, I don't think it's beyond us to say that it's, um, that it's present even in this church, as I would imagine in every church. It's something we all need to be very um, just aware of. 
So this is a serious issue. But then when we come to the Bible and when Christians come to the Bible to understand this issue, they can often come to different conclusions. Can we have security? Can we have assurance? Can we not? And the fact is, this passage before us today, if we only read this passage, we would probably all come away agreeing that you can lose your salvation. It seems to be what this passage says. And that is how many Christians take this passage. The problem is when you start reading the rest of Scripture, and there are many other passages that seem to say something different. That God sustains those who are His. He keeps them. He holds them to the end. So we believe that the Bible is God's Word. I would encourage you to consider that and, and believe that as well. We believe that God is truthful and trustworthy in all He says, and He never lies or contradicts Himself. We do come across things that are hard to understand. We do come across things that at times seem contradictory, but we would say that the problem is always on our side. Our limited understanding, limited ability to comprehend, perhaps some sin on our life and not on God's side. So that's what we have before us today. And we're gonna start, here's how we're gonna go through this. We're gonna start with what is most clear in this passage, spend most of our time on that, the fact is, this passage isn't really about whether you can lose your salvation or not. That's not the force of this passage, but it is something that we get hung up on. But we would miss the point of this passage if that's all we talked about. So we're going to start about what is most clear here, and then we will talk about that as towards the end, uh, because it is important. So with that, let's pray, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we do, I am readily aware of your need, uh, of, uh, sorry, of our need today for you, of my need for you as we seek to understand your word. Um, we believe that your word is consistent and true and does not lead us astray. Um, but this passage before us today is, is one of the more difficult ones we come across and we want to understand it. Would you give us understanding? Would you help us um, lead us with your spirit and help us not just to understand, but help us to respond to it um, rightly, heed um, what it says in our lives, put it into practice, um, and just use it um, as a means of your grace in our lives. In your name, amen. All right, so we're in Hebrews 6, starting at verse 4. Let me read the first couple verses. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now I'm going to stop right there, kind of explain that. I propose that this is talking about Christians. It is imagining true believers, that these are various ways that you could describe a true believer. They have been enlightened, that is, their eyes have been opened to see Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, the ho having the Holy Spirit is, a, is the determiner of being part of God's people or not, whether you have the Spirit. They have tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the Word of God, They've, they've experienced the power and reality and change of the new life in Jesus. 
Now, some interpretations of this say that this is imagining people who merely seem outwardly to be Christians or are almost Christians, but not really. But I, I propose that this is actually imagining people who are truly believers. The text then goes on. So it's impossible in the case of, of these people, verse 6, and then have fallen away. Now, fallen away means what you think it means. Fallen away, a determined and final rejection of God and the gospel. Technical term here is apostasy. It is a willful, final, public rejection of God. This is not about falling into sin or struggling with sin, backsliding, any of those things. This is firmly and finally rejecting God. And then it goes on. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So to connect that all together, it is impossible to restore these, these Christians who turn their back on God and the gospel and fall away to repentance. Uh, repentance just means into a, a right relationship with God again. So at face value, what this is saying is that you can't truly know God and his salvation, turn and decisively reject him, and then come back. Christ died once for all, and our embracing of the benefits of his salvation is a once and for all thing. We don't get to embrace, then reject, then embrace them again. As it says here, that is akin to asking Jesus to go back to the cross and die again for our sins, which if you're thinking that's ridiculous, that's the point. That is a ridiculous thing to suggest. That's not going to happen. It is furthermore to hold him up to contempt, to mock his death. And we don't have to wonder whether this is actually possible. It says it's not. This is impossible. We're going to go on and, and then we'll begin to unpack this. Uh, so the, it continues with an example that helps us as we try to understand this. Verse 7, for, so the word for connects this. This is helping us understand that for land that is drunk, the rain that, is, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In other words, we are talking about those who receive the blessings of salvation, that is the rain in, in the analogy here, and through that rain, through the, the salvation, the work of God, bear good fruit and are further blessed by God. And then there are those who bear bad fruit or don't bear fruit and find destruction and judgment. So the fruit of our lives has something to say about what is going on inside of us. It proves to whom we belong, just like the growth of apples on a tree prove that that tree is an apple tree. Fruit shows you what is going on. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as God causes an apple tree to produce apples, so he causes his people to produce good fruit. Fruit that is in line with his character and will. Fruit that 
points to him, fruit that shows that he is at work. You see signs often on the street that say men at work, right? And when you go past those signs, you expect to see men at work. Well, our lives should have a sign that says God at work and show in various ways that God is doing something. He is changing those who are his. God changes those he, are, those he says saved. Now, before we look at the last few verses, let me just clarify things, a few things here. First, in talking about those who fall away, this is not describing believers who are struggling with sin, who find themselves weak in the face of sin, who question, who doubt. Christians do all of those things. As is often said, if you are concerned that you have fallen away, if you are concerned that you have rejected Christ or perhaps committed what Jesus calls the unpardonable sin, you surely have not. You would not be concerned about it. That concern is a good thing, is actually good fruit. If you are struggling with sin, put all of your energy in continuing to trust in Christ, casting yourself on his sufficient grace, crying out to him rather than worrying about some point at which your sin becomes too much. Trust in Christ. Go back to chapter 4 in Hebrews where we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are struggling with sin, wondering where God is at, wondering how he receives you, do that again and again. With confidence, draw near. Know that this is who God is to you in Jesus Secondly, and at the same time, this is a serious warning here. It is a fearful warning that is directed at Christians. This is a warning given to a body of believers like this, a group of people who claim Christ. There is a purpose to us hearing this. It is impossible if you claim Christ and truly experience a new life in him, then outrightly reject him to be restored what it says. And so this is not first and foremost a doctrinal statement about eternal security, but a warning to God's people. This is not just about getting our doctrine right. This, we are meant to hear this and heed it and do something. Like the rest of the warnings in Hebrews, it is a, meant to be a motivation for us to keep going, to hold fast. A, a few of the, the other warnings we get that we've already come across in Hebrews. Hold fast your confidence. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day. Encourage, come alongside one another every day that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach the rest that is in Christ. Strive to enter that rest. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us not become dull of hearing, but go on to maturity. We've already covered those, and there's more to come. 
like the original readers of Hebrews, we too have a need for this. We too have many opportunities and temptations and invitations to give up, to go astray, to stop believing, to stop maturing. And one of the things about this that we need to realize is that it doesn't always begin in our minds with doubts and questions. Sometimes that's the truth. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's not our mind that initially strays, but our heart. We stop loving God. We stop trusting him. We stop coming to him. We stop worshiping him. And we start giving ourselves to many other things. We start loving and trusting in and desiring other things before him. We may not say, I don't believe in God, but our heart and life reveal that we don't prize him very much. And so God gives us warnings, in part, to keep us on guard, to keep us alert, to keep us from becoming complacent and cold and just going through the motions. And we are to hear them and heed them. But there are ways to gain assurance and to have great comfort. And we see this in the last few verses. So, starting at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, though I've given you these warnings, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author was warning them, but here he immediately turns to encourage them. And even though some of them were very immature, as we saw last week, not really growing up in their faith, he still sees evidence of true salvation in them. He says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He points specifically to the way that they love and serve one another, serve the saints. The love and care and service that we show to one another of a, of a deeper kind than just the love we have for friends or those we get along with, but the deep love, the kind of love that God has given to us as we show that to one another is a sign of God at work among us. Again, God's people bear fruit. They show signs in their life of God working in them and among them and through them. We struggle with sin. We battle sin. We struggle with doubt. But there are things that we can point to for assurance. Things that our brothers and sisters around us, our church community, can point to to help give us assurance. Um, and it's important to realize assurance is not just an individual thing, an individual project. You need other people around you to help point out, hey, I see God working in this way. I see you growing. Often we are blind to these things. So assurance is a community project. Okay. Well, so far, all of this, I would say, is pretty straightforward in the text. If you submit to the Bible as God's word, you should be able to see and agree to this much. All of us who claim Christ should take that warning seriously there at the end this, to have the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope 
until the end, nothing to not be sluggish. No matter what we believe about God's grip on salvation, about eternal security, about whether we can lose or not our salvation, we are to heed these warnings. We are to show earnestness, to persevere, to press on, to hold fast, to fight the good fight of faith, to be on guard, to watch our life and doctrine closely. But we have this question about security, and it does matter. It's an important question. It's a very practical question. So first of all, I want to show you why I believe that Scripture, that, that salvation is not something we can gain, lose, gain, lose. Secondly, I want to show you how we can gain assurance in our salvation. And then third, I, in light of all that, want to help, help you see how I would see this passage in, in light of that. So first of all, I do believe it's quite clear in Scripture that salvation is something that, if genuine, if truly a work of God in us, cannot be lost, cannot be turned from, cannot be done away with. A few verses. John 6, all that the, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. John 10, Jesus also speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then one more, Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so consider what we are told in these verses. You have the promise that Jesus will never cast you out. Jesus will never give up on you once you truly come to him, once you are truly his. Your sin, your weakness, your struggle with sin, your suffering, your questioning will never cause Jesus to let go of you. You also have the promise that no one else, nothing else, will be able to snatch you away from Jesus. Young children often like to play the game where you as the, the adult close your hand and they try to open up each of your fingers one by one, right? Well, you are in Jesus' fist, and no one or nothing else will be able to open that fist and wrench you away. And then Paul goes so far as to say in Romans that nothing, nothing in all of creation will be able to do this. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus in coming to him by faith. Now, I think we can all agree that these promises are meant to be a source of tremendous comfort and hope to us, if they are anything. They are meant to give us comfort and security and hope that God really does have a hold of his people. But if we truly come to him by faith, we are not merely dependent on our ability to keep making that decision or to keep ourselves up, but we can trust in him to keep us. 
To say then, after all of this, that, well, we can remove ourselves from his hand would be to virtually remove all of this comfort, all of this hope. Because if you know yourself well, at all, you know that you yourself are the greatest threat to your own perseverance and faithfulness. Jeremiah tells us the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot trust our own hearts. We cannot trust our own good intentions and consistency. And if you think you can, I propose that you don't know yourself very well. So I suggest that the obvious conclusion from all these passages is that nothing, including ourselves, can remove ourselves from God's hand once we are his. And this seems to be in line with how Scripture speaks of the nature of salvation in the first place. It says that in coming to Christ, a real change happens in us. We are born again or regenerated. We are told that God gives us a new heart, replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We have a new spirit. God's spirit is in us. We are told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so salvation is more than just a decision you make, though not less. God does a real change in you, makes you in a real sense a new person, gives you new desires, new perspective on life, on, of sin, a willingness to repent, a love for him, strength to live for him. And so our salvation, your salvation, does not hang in the balance of a decision you made. It doesn't hang in the balance of how you're doing on a day-by-day -day basis. God changed you, and his work does not fail. He does not say, well, I tried, but they weren't willing to cooperate. I had hopes for that one. Unfortunately, I was mistaken. And so all of this points to the fact that salvation is a work of God in us and on us. And so Paul can elsewhere say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to the work he begins. He will sustain us to the end. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. He initiates it. He applies it. He empowers us to bear fruit as we go along, and he preserves us to the end into glory. However, having said all of that, we also have to be clear about how we can gain assurance that we are truly his. And these are not the same things. It is not the same thing to believe that assurance is possible, that salvation is secure, and to actually have that assurance. Because again, false assurance is a thing, and it's a dangerous thing. This is why that phrase, once saved, always saved, which you perhaps have heard, is so unhelpful. While I technically believe that that is true, it totally ignores the most pressing issue. How can we actually know that we are saved? It doesn't apply to everyone. And this is where the idea of fruit comes in. If salvation is a work of God in us, whereby we are given his spirit and he is beginning to work in us and change our desires and strengthen us, there will be evidence of that work. There will be fruit. 
You will not be the land that bears only thorns and thistles. And this assurance, despite what is very popular today, doesn't come simply from the fact that we made a decision at some point in the past. The Bible wouldn't have us look back on that day that we made a decision for Christ or raised our hand or said a prayer or were baptized as the grounds of our assurance. God may have truly done a work then, but that is not the ground of our assurance. Fruit is. The Bible tells us to look for fruit. Fruit like a willingness to acknowledge and repent of sin rather than hide and justify and defend. Increasing desire to know God and to honor God and to obey God. A love for others, especially for the people of God. An increasing display of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits that the Spirit bears in your life. If anyone knows the song, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of you know that. <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then a very important fruit. Continued faith. Continued faith. The fact that you keep believing and keep holding and clinging is a fruit of the Spirit. You persevere. And so we read earlier in Hebrews, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That holding fast our confidence is a sign that we now have a share in Christ. Which brings us back to this passage and other warnings like it in Scripture. Part of you gaining assurance that your faith is genuine is that you actually hear and heed such warnings. The more pressing question than what exactly does this say about the doctrine of eternal security is, will I heed this warning and not make a shipwreck of my faith? It'll do no good to get our doctrine straight if we fail to obey what God says. So I'll read those last couple verses again that sum this up. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Finally, what then do we make of this suggestion that Christians can fall, fall away, which seems to be what this passage says? Well, in light of the testimony of Scripture, I don't think, I don't believe a truly born-again, regenerate Christian can turn their back on Christ and fall away. At the same time, I think it is clear that one of the means that God uses to preserve us is stern warnings like this against turning back and follow, following away. True believers will ultimately heed such warnings. They will be helped by them. They will prove their faith and gain assurance. And some whose claims to faith were false or misguided or misinformed may fall away, proving that they were never of the Lord. In other words, I don't see the situation that this passage envisions, apostasy, true believers rejecting Christ 
as a real situation that actually happens, but presented as a warning, which is part of God's means and method to motivate us to continue, which is what the rest of the warnings in Hebrews are getting at. And I submit that this is not only what Scripture teaches, but what we truly need. We need hope and confidence that our faith and faithfulness do not rest in our own hands, on our own resolve, our own strength and determination. We need hope that we can hold on, that, that God is holding on to us, even as we are holding on to him. We need to know that his love is such that he will not let us go. We need to know that no amount of struggling with sin will cause him to let us go. No amount of coming to find how, how weak we are and immature we might be in the faith will cause him to loosen his grip. We need to know that no amount of dark days or suffering of going through the valley of the shadow of death is evidence that God has given up on us. We need every encouragement to keep holding on to him by faith, knowing that ultimately it is not on us, but on him to hold on to us. And we can have that assurance. Let's pray.